Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, will we need to own anything in the future? Tien Suo is the author of a new book which predicts that we'll subscribe to things instead. Well, I'll make a big, bold claim. I think 10 years from now, you and I, we won't need to own anything. We won't need to own our houses. We won't need to own our cars. And is there safety in numbers? Researchers have been looking into how pilot whales and dolphins respond to attacks from killer whales. Pilot whales are engaging in mobbing behaviour, which is something that we've seen before in the animal kingdom, but certainly not in whales. But first, polio has made a comeback in Venezuela, nearly 30 years after the country was declared free of the disease. The Americas led the way in the eradication of polio. But now Venezuela has become the first country in the region to report a case of polio since 1991. I'm joined by Chiara Eisner, our science correspondent. Hello, Chiara. Hello. So what do we know about this case? We know that this case came about in a rural state of Venezuela. We know that the child was from an indigenous community and he was almost three years old. I say he, but we don't know the gender, according to the report from the Pan American Health Organization. Another thing we know is that this child was never vaccinated. Now, just for the benefit of people who don't know about polio, which I think is probably most people, given that it's not something you hear about very often, polio is asymptomatic in the majority of patients, isn't it? Yes. So that's precisely why it's so dangerous and why it was so hard to eradicate and actually why it still exists in three countries. 95% of all people with polio will have no symptoms. They usually won't even be able to tell they have any kind of disease. About 4% will come down with a fever. They'll have some discomfort. It'll last for a couple of days. And then less than 1% will actually have visible paralysis. And there's no cure for polio, is there? There's no cure. But it is something that can be prevented very easily and cheaply through vaccination. So what's gone wrong in Venezuela? We know that there had to have been a massive lack of investment in funding for the national vaccine campaign. Even leaving A couple of people unvaccinated from polio is extremely dangerous. But we have stats from a local watchdog group that show that at least a third of this state that the child was from was never vaccinated. So the oral polio vaccine can be given multiple times with no negative effect to the person. And so this is often done to make sure that absolutely nobody is missed. It's better to give someone two or three doses because, as you said, it's cheap than to miss them altogether because then you open up the whole community to vulnerabilities. So evidently this is a reflection of the broader social and economic breakdown in Venezuela, that health spending is one of the things that has been cut and this has led to this case. But presumably we have to be worried about there being a lot more cases still to be discovered. Yes, and we've seen in that same community that there has been a girl found with a paralyzed arm. That is quite indicative of what this could be. We don't have uh, any kind of assurance of what it is, and we don't know the exact strain of polio that the other child has. So we're going off of uh, little evidence, but that's how it is with pretty much everything. 
in regards to health in Venezuela. The only stats we have from the government itself are the ones that were revealed in 2016 by the minister who was promptly fired for doing so. Now, there have also been reports of measles outbreaks in Venezuela. Is anything being done about that? Because presumably that has the same cause, which is the lack of vaccination. Yes. So widespread lack of vaccination has been reported, although we do know that the country did receive and accept many vaccines, enough vaccines from outside organizations. But inside sources tell us that they haven't been used for the measles. Okay, so there's a broader problem with the integrity of the of the health system. And does this pose a, a broader risk to the whole region? It does. And this is for two reasons, primarily. One is that if all of the other healthcare systems around Venezuela were robust and were doing great and were investing a lot of money into their into their communities, I would be less worried. But we know for a fact that, for example, Brazil is investing some of the least amount that it's invested in decades. And their public spending is, is frozen right now and will be for the next 20 years or the next 18 now. And we've seen results from this in Brazil with their recent outbreak of yellow fever, the worst since the vaccine was developed and deployed in the 1940s. This is one thing that puts the rest of the, the countries in the area at risk, the weak health infrastructure that isn't fully strong enough, I think, to push back. The other thing is the extreme migration that we're seeing from people out of Venezuela into neighboring countries. Now, we know that about 1.5 million have left Venezuela by now and are living in surrounding regions. We know that 5,000 people are leaving every single day from Venezuela. And we also know that the governments of Colombia and Brazil, for example, are both opening their arms to these migrants, which is a great thing on a compassionate level, and I'm all for that. But it does really open up both countries to be vulnerable to exactly this kind of thing, the spread of infectious disease. Because what you see is communities of people who are not being officially registered with the government. They're not officially using any of the health systems, or perhaps they are, but they're using them much less than they would, and they're using them only in extreme moments. So you have much much more chances that something like an infectious disease will not be reported and will grow in the communities of Venezuelans that exist without being caught and kind of targeted immediately by the health system. Kiara Eisner, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next up... Like many people, I used to own CDs, but now I pay an online streaming service a few pounds every month for access to all the world's music. Ownership of CDs has been replaced by subscription-based access, and this shift is going to happen in more and more aspects of our lives, according to Tian Zuo. He is the chief executive of Zwora, a company that provides cloud-based billing services for subscription-based companies. He's also the author of a new book called Subscribed about the rise of subscription models and the growth of what he calls the subscription economy. Tian Suo, welcome to Babbage. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. So if you say subscriptions to most people, they'll think about paywalls, I think, on news sites and things like that. But you're talking about 
subscriptions in a much broader sense, aren't you? That's right. We actually see that our whole lives will be transformed into subscription services. If you think about it, you and I, we're both probably buying less and less stuff to meet our everyday needs. And instead, you know, whether it's food or entertainment or work, we're whipping out our phones and tapping into services to meet our everyday needs. And this is what we call uh, this broader shift to a subscription economy. So I pay for my electricity every month by direct debit. Is that a subscription? I'm trying to work out what the uh, definition of a subscription is. My broadband, I feel like that's a subscription. Does it only count as a subscription when the price is fixed and isn't usage-based? Oh, not at all. Not at all. So your utility bill, your cell phone charges, your mobile phone charges, these are classic examples of subscription services. We're all used to using power as a service. We're all used to tapping into communications as a service. But if you really pull back and think about it, you're probably using ride-sharing services, right? That's the services that you subscribe to. You mentioned CDs and music and video. And even for work, companies really aren't buying software anymore. Instead, they're subscribing to services that we all tap into. Now, I'm reminded of a book by Chris Anderson, former journalist at The Economist, and uh, then was the editor of Wired for a while. It was published in 2009. It was called Free. And his argument was that lots and lots of things in the world that we used to pay for were going to become free because they'd be funded by advertising. And I can't help seeing your book and your company's business model as a sort of riposte to that. Do you see the subscription model moving in to kind of replace the, no, everything should be free and supported by advertising model that people thought was the was the right way forward for such a long time. Yeah, I remember Chris's book, Free, and, and certainly I've had debates with Chris about this, but we never thought it was a viable model, right? The idea that things are free doesn't make any sense. Inherently, pure economic basis, there's a value that's being transferred between the vendor and the customer, and there has to be some way of expressing that value. And you see where free have gotten us. Free has gotten us to Cambridge Analytica. Free has gotten us to invasion of privacy by companies like Facebook. That is not the real model. The real model has to be a service that a company provides its customers and there's an exchange of value for that. It's, it's a base of our economic system for hundreds of years, and it's obviously going to continue. People pay for stuff they want. Yes. Uh, obviously, The Economist itself is a subscription business, so we agree with you on that. And in fact, I should probably mention the fact that we are in the process of implementing your own company's software somewhere in the innards of The Economist right now. So just for full disclosure, I should probably say that. Now, I can see why subscription models are attractive to companies. You've got reliable, predictable revenue. What advantages are there for consumers, though? Well, consumers, you have choice. And if you think about it, why would you have to spend all this money up front to buy, whether it's a car, whether it's a piece of software, whether it's a CD or a DVD? Does it make sense? Remember when I was a teenager a long time ago and I had, call it $15, $20 to spend, I, would, I can only buy one CD, right? One CD from one artist with 12 songs, maybe three of the songs I would actually like. And instead, I can give that $10, $15 to an Apple Music, to a Spotify, to a Pandora, and have access to any music that I want. It's a completely different model. It's much, much better for the consumer. Um, Now, as a consumer, does this mean I'm going to be paying more, paying less, or just paying for things differently, do you think? I think you're paying for things differently. I think if you just look at that simple economic argument of, of it makes more sense for us to pay somebody $10, $15, $20 a month, get access to any movie, get access to any music, get access to the software, the applications that we need to run our lives, it's going to be better. And if you look at it at a macro level, just let's go back to ride sharing. We all know that cars are sitting idle something like 92, 93% of the time. And when you change the economic model so that cars are actually being used by all of us in a much, much better way, there's got to be productivity that's unlocked. This is better for the global economy. This is better for us as consumers. And this is better for us as businesses. What about things that we don't think of as conventional subscriptions. Can this be applied in healthcare? Can governments go into this sort of model? 
Oh, absolutely. We're seeing it happen in healthcare already. I mean, it's happening more in the private sector first versus the, the regulated industry. But if you look at Fitbits, if you look at the connected devices, if you look at people that are tracking how often they're jogging and, and how often they're biking, all this data is being collected and fed back to you to a way to manage your own health as a service. Government, I think, is another really exciting area. We saw New South Wales down in Australia actually trying to set up centers where you go to one location and you take care of all your interactions as a citizen, whether it's getting permits to fish, whether it's paying taxes, whether it's getting a driver's license, right? There should be one Service New South Wales ID that can manage your entire engagement with the government. This is all happening right now. So that is sort of government as a service. But your point is that being able to sort of manage your interactions on a sort of service-based level, even if I'm not paying the government to do that, that's still something that you count as part of the subscription economy. Well, if you think of the government as providing a set of services that we subscribe to as citizens, there's enormous opportunity for government agency and government services to be transformed. How far can this go? Because I've heard of startups that let you subscribe to clothes, or I can subscribe to like a local provider of power tools. So when I'm doing some home improvement, I don't have to like go and buy a tool I don't have. What's the craziest thing that you can subscribe to? Well, we, whereas we certainly, because of what we do, we see a lot of crazy stuff. And we used to play this game where we'll sit around late at night and, and try to imagine what is the, the last thing that's going to move to subscriptions. We used to talk about cement. We used to talk about tractors. Well, it turns out the Caterpillar actually is in the subscription economy. Caterpillar is trying to figure out, do you really want to buy the tractor or are you just trying to move some dirt? I can see that. I can see in the same way that you can buy aircraft engines by the mile or buy wind energy rather than buying a wind turbine. But how can you subscribe to cement? I mean, tractors I can see, but cement? Well, there was a company that we have that, that's a flooring company. And, and the first time I heard floors, I thought it was a new technology, like container technology. But they were floors. They were talking about tiles, hardwood, cement. And, and it turns out that they had an invention called a smart floor. And they're putting sensors underneath the floors that actually capture quite a bit of data, pedestrian traffic and so on and so forth. And there's all these applications they can create, whether it's tracking pedestrian traffic to sell back to government agencies, whether it's a smart floor in a hospital that detects when somebody falls off the bed onto the floor, right? Their point is the floor is so pervasive in our lives and, and, and collecting less information. This is where technology is going. It's not about the physical product and selling or renting it to someone on a monthly basis. It's about using technology to provide services that people can tap into in a much, much better way. So what do you think I'll be subscribing to in 10 years' time and that people generally will be subscribing to in 10 years' time that they're not subscribing to now? Well, I'll make a big, bold claim. I think 10 years from now, you and I, we won't need to own anything. We won't need to own our houses. We won't need to own our cars. We won't need to own anything. Just think about lots of people now just go from Airbnb to Airbnb on a monthly basis to explore the world. And this is where the world is going. I, I think there, there, 10 years from now, there won't be a need to actually own anything. So we'll end up owning a smartphone and underwear, and that'll basically be it. And a rucksack. Well, there's lots of services out there. There's, uh, there, there's, there's subscription sock companies. There's subscription underwear companies. Uh, uh, oh my God, it's already happening. <laughs> it's already happening. One thing about subscriptions is you can cancel them. I know what it means if you cancel your subscription to Spotify or The Economist. What does it mean if I cancel my subscription to the floor or to my underwear? Well, certainly we're going through a phase here. And, and when, when, when people first thought about streaming services like music or video, they're like, if I cancel my service, I don't have access to that song anymore. And that's not exactly true, right? You always have options to purchase things. When you're talking about, we talked about underwear. It doesn't mean obviously your underwear disappears. It means that next month you might not get a new box of underwear, right? But these are all choices that you have as a consumer. 
Okay, so it's about giving the consumer the flexibility to buy things in new ways and just opening up that range of choices that's available to us. Well, I'll give you a crazy example for clothing. If you sort of break out and say, look, let's look beyond the clothing. What are you really interested in? You're really interested in fashion. You're really interested in looking good. As a customer, I would love to tap into a service where if I'm going to a different city, I could drop into a hotel room and I would tell the service what dinners I'm going to, what shows I'm going to, what business meetings I'm having. And as soon as I walk into the hotel room, there's a choice of outfits that are pre-selected for me based on my style in the closet itself. And so it's not really about the clothes. It's really about the outcome or the actual value that you're trying to get from the products that you're purchasing. If you look at a fantastic offering, Stitch Fix has been really, really successful. They actually went public just a few months ago. It's not just about the clothing. You actually have a relationship with a stylist that over time learns more about you, learns your preferences, uses artificial intelligence to look at other things that you might be interested in, and actually pre-curating and selecting clothes for you based on your needs in the upcoming days, weeks, and months, right? So it's, it's, it's a relationship with a service that learns more about you and delivers a value that's much, much greater than you simply going shopping and buying your own clothes. Tianzuo, thank you very much indeed. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. What do you think? Are subscription-based businesses really the way forward? Do you want to own anything in the future? Tell us what you think in an email and send it to radio at economist.com or send us a tweet at Economist Radio. And finally, if you were about to be attacked by a predator, would you charge back at it? Some new research explains the social behaviour of whales and dolphins when faced by predators in the form of killer whales. Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent, is on the line. Matt, tell us about this experiment. Yeah, hey Tom. So the researchers went about the work of trying to work out how dolphins and pilot whales, which are both eaten by orcas, Uh, respond to the attacks. Because while we know a great deal about how prey animals respond in the Serengeti, for example, to a lion attack, what's going on below the seas is, is very difficult for us to observe. So, you know, you can't pick up orcas and throw them at dolphins and pilot whales and watch how they interact. You have to kind of tease these things apart. So they recorded the audio of the orcas and then they played it at the dolphins and pilot whales in the wild. And it sounds like this. Orcas, when they are preparing to make an attack, usually stay quiet. But when they're quite far away, they still will chatter with one another while getting ready to make a move on on animals that they're going to eat. So how did the dolphins and the pilot whales respond to this? Well, it was interesting. They Because the researchers also had audio files for the dolphins and the pilot whales. So they played those audio at them as well to create a control effect. And sure enough, the dolphins and the, and the pilot whales didn't really respond when their own calls were played back at them or when the pilot whales heard the calls of dolphins or the dolphins heard the calls of pilot whales. But when the pilot whales and dolphins heard the sound of orcas in the distance, they responded dramatically and very differently. The dolphins huddled up together and then they blasted off in the opposite direction from where they were hearing the orcas. That makes sense, right? You hear a predator and you want to run away from it. The pilot whales, on the other hand, gathered together and then slowly turned and moved as a group directly towards the orcas. And what the researchers think is going on here is that the pilot whales are engaging in mobbing behavior, which is something that we've seen before in the animal kingdom, but certainly not in whales. 
So how many pilot whales are we talking about? And would they be able to, together, take on a killer whale or two? The pilot whales amass into pods of 8 to 20 individuals. And they are big animals. They're not as big as the orcas, but the orcas come in smaller groups of three to five individuals. So when you've got a large group of large objects moving towards you, which is all the orcas can work out, there may be an intimidation factor. We also know from land-dwelling animals, like, you know, weenie animals like meerkats. Meerkats will go up and mob venomous snakes that could easily pick them off. But the mob of meerkats go up and snip and bite, and they can't really do a lot of damage, but they certainly can scare off the predators. So it may send a signal to the orcas, look, guys, we're not to be messed with. We know you're there, and, you know, we're going to be too much effort. So what does this tell us about the social evolution of marine mammals? Well, one of the big questions that we've had for a very long time is why are marine mammals so social? And it could have been for improved reproduction, it could have been for better feeding. But one of the hypotheses that researchers have had for a long time is that, hey, well, maybe they're social for defensive purposes. And that was a nice idea because, of course, there is safety in numbers, but no one had any evidence to support that. So what we see here, while we have very different responses from the dolphins and the pilot whales, are social responses in both groups to the threat of orcas. And that suggests that the social behaviors very likely arose as a protective mechanism to keep these animals from being picked off. Matt, thank you very much. My pleasure, Tom. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>